so our thoughts seem as if they're begging us to think them. But the silence is like beckoning us to surrender. So what are we to do? How do we how do we come to rest to find to find refuge? The very natural, innocent, blameless approach that we take as humans, as mammals, is to arrange the conditions, as Joanna was saying, arrange the conditions just right. And the sense, intuitive sense, is like if I can just get it right and then hold it still, um, this is security. And the Buddha really turns this on its head and says that um, we only find security in letting go. That's where we actually seek safety. So it says, um, not apart from awakening and austerity, not apart from sense restraint, not apart from relinquishing all, do I see any safety for, for living beings. So I read that, I hear that. It's um, beautiful and deep and worthy of our exploration. And of course, as I look out at your faces, I know it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. What, what is wisdom in this moment? And I'm often struck in meeting with you one-on-one that, that each of you pull out something very different from me. My mind and heart constellates in a different way with each of you as a response, you know, as an attempt to be helpful. And I'm struck by the kind of range of, you know, what's called for, what's appropriate, what seems right. And it would be completely negligent to keep saying the same thing to each of you, yeah? But in a Dharma talk, I have to say the same thing to all of you, yeah? That's the situation, yeah? And so, yeah, not apart from relinquishing all do I see any safety for living beings. That's profound and radical and, um, and is, is, is a teaching in some moments and not in others, yeah? And we're entrusting you to actually find your way to, to apply what is offered by Joanna and myself uh, in, in to the conditions of your life, of your mind, yeah. And in, in this way, we're really empowering you to, to make your own path in a, in a deep way. And we're offering a lot of suggestions that like, 
bottomless wealth of the, the Buddha's knowledge, understanding, and we, we each make our own way. Yeah. So the Buddha asks us to look carefully at how clinging operates. And we cling in gross ways and subtle ways. So in the gross ways, the Buddha said, um, discourse of the lion's roar, he said, we cling to sense pleasure, to views, to conventions, and to self-view, Sakaya Ditti. I, I don't want to take too much time illustrating the way we cling to these things, yeah? But it may be familiar, yeah? Um, the way we get caught on pleasure and views and what what we think is just a completely natural way of doing it, we realize in retrospect is just this empty convention. Yeah. So much of what we call the way to do things is just these very idiosyncratic conventions that we've identified with. So we cling in gross ways and then we cling in subtle ways. We cling at the level, moment by moment, to phenomena. Like the attention gets caught, snagged, like a hangnail. The way a nail gets caught on fabric, the attention gets caught on phenomena. Yeah. The knee... The emotion, sensation, the the thought, the sound, and it's like somehow the attention gets snagged, yeah, and we get fixated there. So the Buddha says, like, you know, what what actually snags the attention? How does the attention? Right? Do you know that sense of the the attention getting snagged? What snags the attention? Clinging, craving, clinging. So in the um, Ati Raga Sutta, the Buddha says that where where there is no craving, then consciousness does not land there. Gives this analogy. Just as if there were a roofed house having windows on the north, south, and the east. When the sun rises and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall, the student says. And if there is no western wall, where does it land? On the ground. And if there is no ground, where does it land? on the water, and if there is no water, where does it land? Lord, it does not land. What would it be like for the light of the mind not to land anywhere? not to get snagged on phenomena.
the light actually goes out without something to land on the light goes out but that is peace and in our practice we're we work in so many ways such diverse kind of skill set and ways of working and ways of meeting the range of suffering and challenges of being human, the challenges of loving and serving. We have to be so fluid and develop so many heart skills. And and some of the skills we develop are in, in fostering an awareness that is more and more uh, free of friction. More and more free of friction, such that it... it um, uh, does not hold anything, yeah? It does not hold that pain in the knee. It does not hold that thought of dinner. It does not hold that vision, that visual impression, yeah? And so this development of um, an awareness that is more and more frictionless is is an aspect of of samadhi, the, the Pali word for the unification of mind, <clears throat> concentration, settle, you know, settling. And um, samadhi samadhi arises um, as the fruit of letting go. the fruit of non-clinging. We often think about samadhi or concentration as that which we want to get in order to get happy. But it's kind of the reverse. We get happy enough so that we can let go. And then concentration arises. We hear about samadhi and it, it's, it just, um, you know, I mean, so much of the time when we're evaluating our practice, we're evaluating what's the activity level of the mind? How busy is the mind? And we use that as the barometer for everything. Yeah. And it's really important, as I'll talk about, like, for one, there's so much goodness that's happening beneath the level of awareness, regardless of the level of activity in the mind. Yeah? There's a lot, you know, just in being in the silence, your effort, your sincerity, your encounter with your own heart, these are, these are you know, the ways we're supporting each other. These are beautiful things. The, the way we're refraining from harm, Yeah? preventing unskillful states, the way we're not harming each other. There's so much goodness that's happening, and yet we look at that top layer of the mind and see there's a lot of activity and think nothing's happening. Yeah, it's not fair. And the more I get into it, the more I I sense that... um, Sometimes it's like there's 
there's the activity level of the mind is like there's a lot of of um, you know mental chatter or something, but it's almost as if the body is resting in a deeper way. It's like the samadhi does mean the attention gets gets quieter and non-distracted, but it's almost like okay, the mind is chattering, but the body there's some sense of samadhi in the in the body. Yeah. So, so if um, samadhi is not something we get in order to to become happy, but we become happy enough, we what are what are we making peace with? What are we making peace with? We make peace with um, with restlessness. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi says. Um, uh, to understand the predicament of anxiety, we need only sit down quietly, draw our attention inward, and watch the thoughts as they tumble by. Our fears and concerns need not assume vast proportions, but beneath the melody of constantly changing thoughts, punctuating them like the thumping of the bass in a jazz quintet, is the persistent throb of worry and care, the second rhythm of the heart. Life can feel so relentless, you know. It's like um, one one translation of the first noble truth of dukkha is that, that the, we're constantly bombarded by sensory experience. We sight and sounds, we can close our eyes, but there's still the body, there's still the mind. And that it's like the heart is being ruffled over and over by sensory experience. And there's a kind of longing to come to some rest. Suzuki Roshi says, you, you cannot stop your life, you know. You're always changing into something else. Always. Incessantly. So, some of the heart's longing is like to start to slow the change down. And one of the functions of samadhi, as I'll talk about, is like it starts to actually slow life down. The sense of like we we come to be more protected from the the relentlessness of sensory experience because we're we're focusing in a simpler way, you know. Like we all, we all kind of often feel busy, right? Busy, busy. But busy is just another word for samsara, for this realm. That's what it is to be human. It's to feel a little busy. Yeah. And the sense of like the attention gathering, becoming more fluid. We, it's, it's not a permanent refuge, but it does 
have the effect of soothing the heart such that our the, the sense of being flooded by phenomena starts to abate. So looking at our conditioning um, there's a you know, some some of the fragmentation of the mind is a function of maybe this moment, this moment in cultural time, and some predates this entirely as part of evolutionary history. So culturally, it's like, um, not to belabor it, but we, we're always practicing something. We're always practicing something. And the truth is, a lot of times, with the way we engage with technology, what we're practicing is fragmentation. And we've acclimatized to such a dizzying use and reliance on the stimulation of technology that um, we, we don't even realize how wild it actually is. And, you know, it used to be, like, the, only, the best I could do to, like, entertain myself is to think, yeah? And now I can Google the next dumb thought that careens into my head. <laughs> like, you can't trust me with that, you know? It's like... Um, but... That's the situation, yeah? And it's like, it's serious, it's serious, yeah? It's like, my friend said, it's like he feels like he's an ex-tech person and said, it's, um, he feels like a technology, the way it's being used, it's an existential threat to mindfulness, mm-hmm. yeah? And um, as connoisseurs of the attention, we want to be careful, like attention is our most basic currency, yeah? How do we honor this, protect this, yeah? And some of this has nothing to do with this moment. It is, we are, we are, after all, you know, animals. And um, we come from somewhere. And we've had certain features of our biology that have been conserved over time because they're adaptive in some way. And, um, and so we, we uh, in our interest of, of self-preservation, of keeping us safe, it's like we've, we've, we've um, jumpiness has been conserved across evolutionary time. Like there's a certain adaptiveness, right, to us constantly monitoring threat and opportunity. And if I'm just resting peacefully with my breath, I'm not going to spot which one of you might harm me. So so we have this this kind of, um, this redemptive hope in, in worrying, 
is a, a researcher who, who spent spent their career studying worry. Really, they write uh, when I'm worrying, I'm mostly engaged in thought or talking to myself. This thinking, triggered by internal or external cues that signal danger, primarily concerns the future and involves the anxious anticipation of and mental attempts to avoid the many negative events I imagine might happen. The consequence of any perception of threat is the activation of basic fight-or-flight reactions, motivating attempts to escape or avoid. Quite naturally, under these circumstances, I feel compelled to figure out how to prevent these bad things from happening or how to prepare myself for the worst. Worrying is a device that I believe can function to do this. Because I'm devoting large amounts of time to generating and attending to worrisome thoughts, much of my life is spent living in an illusion. How much faith do we want to place in worrying? Not zero, not zero, but maybe we've placed too much faith in it. This um, this wandering mind has has a kind of deep groove in our in our brain. Um, and and there are, you know, when we're not engaged with a task, there there are kind of network of brain regions that become more active when the, like we're at rest, yeah. And um, the uh, uh, brain scientist Jennifer Beer she characterizes uh, the um, writes this. Uh, she says the increased resting metabolism of the medial prefrontal cortex, a a brain region associated with the brain at rest. The increased metabolism of the the medial prefrontal cortex is theorized to support a default psychological mode of self-evaluation that provides chronic generalized updates on the self. (laughs) yuck (laughs) chronic generalized updates on Matthew puke this is the situation haven't noticed yeah So, um, some of what we're doing when we actually cultivate this steadiness of mind, this unification of mind, is we are um, stepping out of the mode of taking the self compulsively to be an object. This kind of, the, the way in which the brain at rest is is simulating the future and and moving back into the past and doing a lot of self-referential thinking how you know and 
Um, and so this this capacity, this settling samadhi is um, it's really it's really what turns the Dharma, what turns Buddhism into something more than a philosophy. Yeah. We can be on board with practice, we can sit, we can do retreats, we can spend quite a bit of time and still be kind of relating to the Dharma as a philosophy. But a lot of what's being pointed to in the Dharma talks, um, they're, they're understandings that actually can only be developed when we start to get more quiet. So uh, this, this development of, of samadhi, one of, its, one of its functions is that it, it starts to breed a deep confidence, both in your own mind, your own capacity, and in the path. For a long time, there's a part of us that really wonders if this is a scam. Yeah. Yeah, I see some nods. Thanks for the honesty back there. Um, Even if it's like only dimly conscious, it's kind of like, oh yeah, maybe it's for those people or something, but like the Buddha wasn't talking about me. Not this situation. Yeah. And one of the kind of fruits of the mind settling and actually really getting a taste of like, oh, I, it can, life can feel very different, not a little different, not like subtle kind of cognitive reframe. It can feel really different to be alive. Some of you, and no doubt, have had moments of this, yeah? Or a big taste of this. It's like, whoa it's different to be alive when the mind is gathered in this way. Yeah. And that sense of like, oh, okay, I can actually surrender more deeply to this path of practice. Samadhi helps us cook our life. Yeah. So we've been talking about this, like how Joanna talked about like proximity, proximity, intimacy, intimacy with experience. Part of how we digest the past is to be very intimate with it, with the arising of memory and feeling. And it's like samadhi brings the attention into deeper contact with the material of our life, yeah? And when it makes that deeper contact, the process of discharging the energy, the process of becoming unafraid of our inner life, that speeds up, yeah? It speeds up because we're making deeper contact, we're feeling the full brunt of whatever it is. And when we start to feel the full brunt of it, it, it's, it helps we become desensitized to it more quickly. We become unafraid of it. Our inner life starts to feel more and more safe. So, um, 
all of this requires navigating uh, thoughts. Yeah. And thoughts, thoughts are not bad. Thoughts are not the enemy. We meditators, we're almost like ashamed that we think, you know, right? Like, like just when you notice yourself, you're trying to follow the breath or whatever, and then you notice yourself in some random daydream. And then that, that little commute <laughs> from fantasy to breath is just so shameful. You know, it's just like, oh, Matthew, oh. You know, just like dog head down, just <laughs> wandering back to the breath. You know, like, But we, uh, we can, like, just instantly forgive ourselves, yeah? Of course, of course. Yeah, the whole process of getting caught up is itself unconscious. Forgive yourself. Forgive yourself, yeah? And so we're not turning thoughts into an enemy. That, that, that kind of is just another species of clinging. But... Um, we are learning to navigate this realm of thought. So uh, we want to, to see how, how, much, um, how much hope we place in thinking, how much we use thinking to solve everything. Yeah. It's so good, it's so useful as a problem-solving tool that we have come to assume that all problems must be solved in the realm of thought. And in a way, without realizing it, we are often trying to think our way to liberation. And this path unfolds through silence, through surrender, through non-conceptual awareness. So thoughts, you know, when we scan, you know, like it's like some techniques of meditation do a kind of body scan, scanning the sensations uh, through the body. If we scan the entirety of our sensory field of, you know, thoughts and feelings and, you know, the body and sounds, thoughts are so prominent. Like the breath is like, light years away and this subtle faint star right and then (laughs) thoughts are just like this spotlight yeah and they're like we can't look away and you can almost feel sometimes like this like embryonic thoughts that that do they like beg us to think them like (laughs) bring me to life you know (laughs) you can feel the attention getting tugged yeah And so um, the uh, Nobel laureate uh, Kahneman said, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. Yeah? While we're thinking about, like while while I'm lost in thought, it takes on a kind of urgency. Yeah? It's like, 
yeah, it's very seductive, very seductive. And so when we get quiet, we we learn that um, that the compulsion to tell stories is is I think a need, an expression of our our, our wish to control, to stay secure, to give up thought is to start to become more and more porous to the world, undefended. And so the compulsive like additions that we make to our autobiography, you know, e-updating the autobiography second after second after second, yeah. Oh, now this is happening. Now I'm following the breathing and now... I, now it's now I'm. Uh, am I getting wiser? Am I you know like I don't know. right? It's like and we're just like adding chapters to the autobiography in this like like updating it again and again and again. Yeah, it's like we're doing that to stay oriented, to stay in some control. Yeah, it's no doubt adaptive in respects. And it robs us of intimacy with the present moment. So we see when that that there's almost like a terror of not talking to ourselves about ourselves. That it requires a level of a willingness to be vulnerable in a deeper way. And, and it requires a sense of safety. Yeah. Again, may we be a refuge for each other. There's no way we can let go unless there's some trust like that it might be all right. Yeah. And so the the further we get from our like homeostasis, the kind of balance point, the further we get from that, the more urgent the need to talk to ourselves about experiences. And this can be unpleasant or pleasant. We're starting to sense into these, these needs, yeah. Okay, does it feel okay enough to be a little more porous? Just not to be tracking, not to be keeping all of my ordinary reference points. Does it feel okay? This is supported by the development of equanimity, which we've talked about. Um... I'm not not a scholar, but uh, my my understanding is that the word equanimity etymologically there are connotations of of eye and seeing and balance and gazing upon without interference. Gazing upon without interference. So when we sit, when we do a retreat, when we even just sit for five minutes at home, we, we discover this basic existential truth, which is that um, something's always wrong. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry if that 
comes as bad news. But, um, uh, something can always get better. Yeah. And um, that kind of compulsive urge to, to, to optimize the moment fatigues the heart and keeps us separated from the, the intimacy of life. So we're learning to, um, to surrender to the imperfection of life. And what this does is actually maintains the kind of, um, it's not a flattening of life. I was talking with, with one person today. It's like it's not a flattening of life. Our life, if anything, becomes more poignant but is drained of some of its melodrama. Yeah. It's like we're more free to feel grief and in the next moment delight. Yeah. The the kind of trace of experience. Yeah. This starts to we start to digest things on the spot. And it frees the heart up for spontaneity for love in the next moment, for anything. So samadhi is is often distinguished from mindfulness as like samadhi is narrow and mindfulness is broad. But the truth is that samadhi comes in very narrow and broad flavors. And mindfulness itself involves some measure of samadhi, some measure of stability. When mindfulness does not have some measure of stability in it, it feels like we're being ping-ponged around by phenomena, just glancing off the surface of phenomena. And what this, this dimension, this samadhi factor of the mind does, is that we actually, when we say to, to connect and sustain, or to aim and soak in, penetrate, the samadhi is that aspect of actually soaking into phenomena, the sense of the awareness landing and fusing it in some way. And so the Buddha talked about samadhi and mindfulness in, in um, not as, as utterly distinct uh, factors. They share in, in non-distractedness. So there are many, many flavors of samadhi, of, of pleasure, of rapture, of the sense of the mind and body just unified, of silence, of space, um, of, of, yeah, just rapturous delight. The Buddha says in, in the Anguttara uh, Nikaya, um, describes Samadhi like a lake fed from below with, with, with a spring. There's nothing, nothing of one's body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Sounds good. Yeah. Un, uh, nothing in the body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. Yeah. And so while we want to have some 
some reverence for this, it's like too often that is turned, that's almost like fetishized in practice. Yeah. And remarkable as it may be, even, you know, day after day of like rapturous delight, the entire body-mind pervaded by pleasure of various subtleties and intensities, even that gets old. Even that actually fatigues the heart. The only thing that doesn't fatigue the heart is peace. So it's not to be fetishized, but it's not to be feared. The Buddha says, like, this pleasure is to be followed, developed, encouraged. It's not to be feared, says those words. Sometimes people worry about getting attached to concentration and... um, You know, that, yeah, that's, that's possible, but we, we often brace against pleasure, almost like paranoid about the arising of pleasure. So um, there are, you know, I mean, this can happen if one's not being conscious of one's craving, you can get caught. I remember I had a... Um, a Dharma friend, we were peers sitting together in a small group in uh, at a Quaker meeting house in Los Angeles for some years. And um, he was like a very dedicated meditator. He would always be there and he would always meditate and he would always look really unhappy. Yeah. And he said, uh, at some point I like asked a little bit about it. He said, 35 years ago, I had an experience yeah, meditating. And I've been trying to get back there since, yeah. Like, so tragic, yeah. But um, we don't need to do that to ourselves, yeah. We don't need to do that to ourselves. Samadhi is the fruit of letting go. So it's like we cannot cling our way to settledness of mind. So, um, this concentration arises out of many factors, not just our will. We put all this pressure on our will, like sometimes um, I'll sort of be, be sitting and I'll just be like, you know, distracted and then I'll sort of like give myself this like, harsh pep talk where it's like all right Matthew enough of this bullshit you know we're gonna focus (laughs) never works (laughs) never yeah because it's like trying to fix clinging with more clinging yeah (laughs) and so it's like we cannot perch ourselves in the watchtower and sort of just like make it happen yeah but there are, there are um, cultivations we develop. So 
I'll just say a few more things before we we finish. Um, so, so patience and perseverance, which is like I know totally not your favorite answer, you know, <laughs> uh, but it's real. Patience, perseverance, yeah. We uh, we soothe and settle the body, yeah. When there's like we got to find ways of really landing in our seat, in our posture, of giving way to gravity, of finding some measure of pleasure, of relaxation. We can't tune in from a kind of sense of brittleness and overstimulation. We establish an attitude of um, good enough. We're not going to try to fix our life. We're not going to try to fix the moment. We're not going to try to make progress even. We're not going to try to get concentrated. We're going to take what is offered to us in this moment. Like a polite dinner guest, yeah? We just take what's offered. To live is enough says Suzuki Roshi. We get very clear on what is and is not inside the focus space. Sometimes the line that divides what we're focusing on and what we consider distraction is not bright. It gets fuzzy. You know, when you're like, well, I'm sort of I'm kind of paying attention to this, but maybe that, that that kind of fuzziness, yeah. It's like, okay, we actually have to draw a bright line. And the bright line might be around all of sensory phenomena, yeah, at all six sense doors. But we want to draw that line. Maybe it's right here. The line is right here, just here, just the sensations of the nose. We can use mental noting, yeah, as a way of actually soaking the attention in to the object. And so there's something about using the noting, like if we're doing the, we're using the breath of breathing in or breathing out. We're noting the beginning and the end of the inhale, one, two, three, four, for the exhale. Trying to get precise. And it's like in issuing those mental notes, it, it, it's like it recruits the same circuits that would chatter otherwise, yeah? It pushes some of that out. No more room for it. And so mental noting, especially in the Burmese lineage, the Mahasi lineage, is, is, um, that is the basis of the practice. Not just during formal practice, Keep continuous mindfulness in all from the moment of of waking up to the moment of going to sleep and actually making mental notes. Oh, see it. See it. Think. We stabilize the internal gaze. When we're entranced by a movie, the, the eye, the visual attention is darting around. Yeah? So behind the closed eyes, this can be a very restful object too. 
behind the closed eyes, we actually attend to the darkness and we sort of focus on a narrow space there. And it can be very soothing, just the, the kind of, like the mottled mixture of darkness and brightness. We just focus there. And we may still be attending to the breathing, but there's something about beginning by focusing, stabilizing the inner gaze. Some of this is just, um, is about sense restraint, is about this long-term development of sila, of living a life of non-regret, you know, which is what sila is about. It's about living a life of non-regret. And this um, makes our inner life more simple. We don't have to remember so much, yeah? As our past becomes more whole, we feel less of a threat that we might be ambushed by it. It feels safer to to settle in, yeah? And disorientation is a feature of spiritual practice. Disorientation is a feature in a number of ways. So, our willingness to be disoriented, to not have the ordinary kind of reference points is part of how we settle in. Otherwise, there's something that keeps pulling us back out to remind ourselves of who we are, of where we are, of where I end and you begin. Yeah. So there's a willingness to actually be disoriented, like, oh, my being is a little fuzzy. Where are you? the front edge of my perspective, it starts to get softer. I start to forget myself. I start to forget what I want. I forget what I hate. I start to forget. Being becomes more porous, more vague. Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche says, um, we should experience everything totally, never withdrawing into ourselves as a marmot hides in its hole. This practice releases tremendous energy, which is usually constricted by the process of maintaining fixed reference points. Referentiality is the process by which we retreat from the direct experience of everyday life. Maybe it feels okay enough, safe enough to just Surrender to stillness, to silence, to not knowing, to not needing. The silence here, it's like it beckons us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.